0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to a very special 279th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is the most influential producer in the history of the medium of television, a man who, in the 1970s, revolutionized the sitcom format by using it to tackle matters of social import on a host of unforgettable shows, including All in the Family, Sanford and Son, Maud. Good Times, The Jeffersons, One Day at a Time, and Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and who, even now, in 2019, at the age of 96, is continuing to do so on Netflix's reboot of One Day at a Time. A winner of four Emmy Awards, two Peabody Awards, the National Medal of the Arts, and a Kennedy Center's Honor, and one of the original seven inductees into the Television Academy Hall of Fame back in 1984, alongside Lucille Ball, Milton Burl, Patty Chayefsky, Edward R. Murrow, William Paley, and David Sarnoff. The only member of that remarkable class of TV pioneers who is still standing, and not just still standing, but still going strong, the legendary Norman Lear. Over the course of our conversation in his office on the Sony lot, Lear and I discussed how growing up during the Great Depression, serving during World War II, and having the complicated father that he had shaped his social conscience how he and his cousin wound up writing comedy material together during their spare time, and how that led them from nightclubs to variety shows to TV series, how both a British TV series and a wide array of personal memories inspired All in the Family, and how, specifically, that show about the Bunker family of Queens, New York, which ran on CBS for 205 episodes over nine seasons, changed the medium forever, what inspired Lear to create so many other shows while *All in the Family* was still in its run, including spin-offs like *Maud and the Jeffersons* and even spin-offs of spin-offs, namely the *Maud* spin-off *Good Times*? Indeed, at one point, back when there were just three TV networks, Lear had eight shows simultaneously on the air, six in the top ten of the ratings. Why, in the 80s, he walked away from TV? And why he was convinced to return to it in 2017 with a reboot of One Day at a Time, only now with the single mom at its center turned into a Cuban American veteran and the show itself now going out via a streaming service, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Lair, thank you so much for doing this. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Well, so we always begin with just a few basics. Obviously, I can and have looked them up, but just for our listeners, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living?
1: I was born in New Haven, Connecticut, raised largely in Hartford, and my father, he undid a number of people to do well. Yes. <laughs> and we'll, uh, I know we'll come to that a
0: little bit more, but I guess growing up during the Depression at a time of rising anti-Semitism... Do you think those are things that shape your own social
1: awareness, social conscience? They shaped mine for sure. I tried to enlist the day after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. My mother begged me. She said she would die if I enlisted. You know, I was a college; it was just starting yeah. college, and there was no way they were going to take me. That was at that time the promise. Hmm. But I, I wanted to
0: kill. But even before that, growing up in the late 20s, early 30s, when the country itself was in deep trouble here, you know, on the homeland, as they now say, you were seeing how everyone was sort of equally, didn't matter if you were white or black or rich or poor, everybody was sort of thrust into a bad situation together, right?
1: And what years are you talking about?
0: Well, Great Depression years, uh, years of Father Coughlin,
1: I know, was somebody that you yeah, were aware of. The, the Great Depression years were difficult years. And uh, Father Coughlin weighed on my mind when I discovered him at age 8 or 9 or Mm -hmm. 10 or something like that. My father happened to be in prison at that time. Yes. It was no time to learn there were people who hated you because of your religion, because Mm -hmm. of the way you were born. But this Father Coughlin did, and he had radio time Mm -hmm. to express it to the country.
0: Did you yourself experience anti-Semitism growing up as a Jew in Connecticut? I did
1: not. Yeah, I did not. I, that's you know, without an alarming incident here or there, right. In the course of a lifetime, I can't say I grew up with a good deal of anti-Semitism. I grew up with it very much on my mind. Yes. certainly as a product of World War II. Yeah, when I said earlier I wanted to kill, it was because of what I had been feeling for some years about everything I'd heard about the Jews that were killing in Germany. Yes. You've referred to what
0: has to have been probably the defining event of your childhood when at nine your father had to go away for a while. I was also born in New Haven, and weirdly, I also had a father who had to go away for a little while at around that same age. So I know that it's a jarring thing for a kid, and I wonder if you can share just how it affected your life in those immediate years thereafter.
1: Well, uh... (laughs) it's... I, I suppose I could say it scared the hell out of me. My mother was not a sterling figure, you know, or I should say a stalwart. Yes. My mother was a fearful person. And with a father in prison and Father Coughlin on national radio talking about the Jews who were being killed in Germany, it was not an easy time to be a young Jewish kid. And you are also... a, a young Jewish kid alert to the moment. Sure. And then, on the
0: even more personal level, I guess because of the financial strain that comes with your father going away for three years, you had to sell off a lot of stuff. You were then sent to live with other relatives while your mom and sister, I think, were elsewhere. All of that has got to be tough, you know, for a kid and maybe force you to grow up a
1: little earlier than uh-huh. most, right? I would imagine it did, <laughs> just looking at it from a great distance yes. now. It certainly forces growing
0: up. So the way you got into Emerson in the first place for that brief period before Pearl Harbor, you had won an oratorical contest, so you
1: were already you know, good most, with words? You know, it's the most amazing thing yeah. at this moment as we sit here. Yeah. A big success on Broadway right now. Yes. Is, I think it's called The Constitution and Me. What the
0: Constitution Means to Me, yes. What the
1: Constitution Means to Me, I saw it. Yes. It was absolutely brilliant. Yes. I happened, when I graduated from high school, it happened to be, it was announced that the first American Legion oratorical contest was taking place. I entered. I won either the New England Championship or the Hartford County, I forget what it was called, yeah. championship. And a year at Emerson College was the prize. And this so, topic was about what the Constitution means to the you. The Constitution and right. me, what the Constitution means to me, yes. Right. When I saw the show, I went backstage and saw the young woman who played the yes, role and so track, forth. Yeah. We couldn't get over that. That's great. Well, so when your time
0: at Emerson was interrupted, as you say, it wasn't December 8th that you left, but it was about nine months or something later, you're now still like 19, 20 years old, Mm. and you wind up in Italy during the war. Is that where you're
1: mostly based? Yes, I was based in Foggia, Italy with the 15th Air Force. And you saw quite a bit of action, right? Flew 52 missions, dropped bombs 35 times. So to experience
0: that, and then to be dropped back, Three years later, stateside with, I guess you didn't go back to college, right? Or did you finish?
1: I didn't go back to college. By the time the war was over, I was married and we were pregnant. So
0: why was the, at least in your mind, the idea of being a press agent appealing?
1: Because uh, as a kid in the Depression, The conversation at dinner was largely what we could afford. Mm -hmm. Was my sister going to get the sneakers next month or was I going to get them? We had a couple of dollars put away for that purpose. Mm -hmm. That was mostly the conversation. I had one uncle. Mm -hmm. His name was Jack Lear, and he was a press agent. And he was the only uncle who ever flicked me. A quarter. (laughs) Just give it to him. And he would flick me a quarter every once in a while. And I just, that was my hero. Yeah. I wanted to be an uncle when I grew up who could flick a quarter to a nephew. And that job, you did end up landing, but it wasn't really what you thought it would be, I guess. And instead... Well, it required what I did. I didn't know at the time I wanted to become a pro station. It required writing. Right. What we were doing as young press agents scattered about New York working for these people, was writing witticisms, funny things, making up situations we could put our clients in. Right. So that was kind of a cousin to uh, comedy writing. And And when I bumped into Ed Simmons, who came to California to be a comedy writer, that was something I kind of understood from having been... A so Ed Simmons was
0: married to your cousin. Yes. And you guys were, we should just to contextualize this for a listener, there's no TV at this point, right? No. And you and Ed Simmons are not planning to be writers together. You guys are just basically going door to door, peddling whatever you can pedal, right?
1: Yeah, that's how we supported our
0: wife and kid. So how does that lead to comedy writing?
1: Well, he wanted to be a comedy writer, so what we were working on when the uh, girls went to a movie and we had the evening alone, we would write a comedy routine uh, as best we could from what we knew. We wrote something for a woman who was playing at a place called The Bar of Music on Beverly Boulevard in Los Angeles. And our wives came home one evening at 10 minutes after 10 or something from a movie, and we had just completed it, Having been working on it for a couple of weeks, I said, let's go out and see if we can sell it. <laughs> and six blocks away was this bar of music. And this woman sitting at a piano making jokes bought it for 40 bucks. That was
0: the first time you'd ever sold anything that you'd written? Yes. So you and Ed walk away with 20 each, and this seems like a better business plan than posing as baby photo takers, right?
1: Right, but which we had to continue to do in order to make a living but we now made time for getting together after it and writing. So the way it
0: escalated from there, if you can share, I guess it basically started with, forgive the word, but like bullshitting Danny Thomas, right? Uh-huh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what was well, that? We wrote a piece for him that he did for years. Right, but you didn't know him when you wrote it. No, no,
0: didn't, <laughs> didn't know it at all. And so you basically just get him on the line, he buys uh-huh.
1: and then I guess it went over well because other people started calling, right? It did go over well, and we did hear from a couple of others. But still had to find the Eddie Cantor here and the Red Skelton there right. that would pay for a monologue or the parody to a song or right. something. So some semblance of financial security, was that
0: first when you and Ed started doing stuff for Martin and Lewis? Uh-huh. That was when you were finally making... Yes. Some decent bucks?
1: My, well, Martin Lewis, we were coming out to NBC on a show called the Colgate Comedy Hour. And uh, they were among four comics who every fourth week they were on. That was my first working job, you know. So
0: I know there were a lot of different variety shows in that period, Martha Ray, all kinds of people. But I read that Roland Kibby and I guess it's Nat Hyken were
1: yeah. two important... Very. Teachers for you. What did you learn from them? Who were they? Well, Nat Hyken was the man who invented Bilbo (laughs) and that character. And he was a lovely man and a lovely comedy writer. What was the other name? Roland Kibbe? Roland Kibbe. Roland Kibbe was a senior comedy writer. He was asked to be the head writer for Tennessee when Tennessee Ernie Ford came onto television. Mm -hmm. And he asked me and Ed Simmons if we would join them. We did for a while. I needed that income. I had one kid and another one on the way, and I needed that income. Ed, I think, could have waited and chose to do so. So we broke up as partners. And
0: basically, though, what those guys, Kibby, Hyken, maybe others around that time were teaching you was how to take what was obviously an innate ability to write funny things and actually add some structure to that. And, yes. Yeah? So. You mentioned you split up with Ed. Then you have a new partner to come along with Bud Yorkin. How did you guys first cross paths? Because that lasted until 75. Well, Bud
1: Yorkin was a director and producer. And he was the uh, producer of the Ernie Ford Show. So I was working for Bud when we first met. And then we became partners. I, the writing producer, he, the directing producer.
0: And the reason that you chose to partner with him as opposed to somebody else you just did you compliment each other nicely or what was it uh he asked me he asked you okay that's a good reason (laughs) that's
1: probably the the only reason so by the
0: end of the 50s how did it come to be that you get to create your own show for the first time that it may come as a surprise to some people that your first show in 1959 was not a comedy or a dramedy but it was a western
1: oh yeah Kibby and i We had the opportunity to do a Western for Henry Fonda. Mm -hmm. What was the title? The deputy. The deputy, yeah. And it was based on a conceit that was basically represented best by the front page, which was a major success. An editor who had a young reporter who was an investigative reporter. And the reporter wanted to leave, and the editor kept him on the paper with one trick after another. Right, so, And the uh, it wasn't an editor, it was a uh, sheriff who yes. wanted to keep his deputy. <laughs> and how did you like
0: what some might feel is pressure, responsibility of now anchoring a TV series as opposed to just contributing to somebody else's?
1: It was work. Yeah, it, it, didn't, it, didn't, it didn't feel any different.
0: So I guess another big turning point in your life was becoming aware of something called Till Death Us Do Part. Can you share, this is now, as you're going into the 60s, you hear about it somehow, and and maybe you can just
1: take it from there. How did I hear about it? I read something about Till Death Us Do Part. It was a British series. What I'd learned about it represented a lot of what I lived with my father and me. He was the head of the family on Till Death Us Do Part. was a, a bigoted kind of guy who fought with his son about everything in the... Uh, my father and I did that. So I, I was told I didn't need to get the rights, mm-hmm. the British rights. I could just do my life with my father. But it was easy enough. It was the woman who represented the show was somebody I had met. So I did get the rights mm-hmm. to it. And the antecedent to All in the Family as a result is the British show, to death, thus do part.
0: And so you and Bud Yorkin now go to work. I know it took an unusually long time to come from pilot to series order because I guess in something that I've never heard anything like it, that there were three versions of the pilot for two networks and all that. Why was it such a challenge to make this a go?
1: Well, because it was sensitive material. Mm -hmm. I mean, at this moment in time, we are putting together a special Yes. They're going to do an episode of The Jeffersons and an episode of uh, All in the Family. Yeah, All in the Family. And Jimmy Kimmel is the guy who called and said, would you like to do this? Yeah, I'd love to do it. It was his idea. He got the time on ABC, and he and I will talk about it, and we will do a live performance of an episode, word for word, of The Jeffersons and an episode word for word of All in the Family. So if we can set the scene, some of our listeners are
0: younger, they're not going to remember what sitcoms looked like before All in the Family. Can you set the scene a little bit of what you were coming into when you wanted to make All in the Family?
1: Well, I always believed that the Carol O'Connor, Bunker character was far more frightened of tomorrow. Mm-hmm. He didn't know what was coming and it scared the shit out of him. And he was much more that than he was a hater. Mm-hmm. So when we were talking about a song, we had that in mind. Well, Uh, even before that, though,
0: what I'm saying is, what were the hit sitcoms about before All in the Family? What kind of
1: subject matter? We're not talking about social issues, right? This was a heavy-duty idea for a sitcom at that time. The Roast is Ruined. And the boss is coming to dinner. That's the kind of thing people would build an episode around. Yes. What a tragedy.
0: (laughs) What a tragedy. Yeah, I'm looking at the shows that were hits right before All in the Family. You've got Flying Nun, Petticoat Junction, Beverly Hillbillies. It's like night and day compared. So I guess, though, before we even get to your show going on the air, I want to come back to your point that this was sort of modeled, not just on the British show, but also on your own experience, because it wasn't just that... Your father and you had these sort of clashes. But from what I've read, tell me if any of these are wrong. He also had a chair that he was possessive of, your father?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I think fathers generally did. There was a chair from which they listened to the radio. You know, it was just the right distance. It was, you know, the attitude of the chair was set just right. Right for the left or right ear, which I heard better. <laughs> so my father had a favorite share, yes. Your father would tell your mother to stifle?
0: Yes. Your father called you meathead? My father called meathead dead from the neck up. And your <laughs> And your family would also bicker like the bunkers to the extent that you would
1: score the fights? Oh, yes. (laughs) I had a scene in a film I did to call with Dick Van Dyke and Debbie Reynolds called The Boss American Style. Yeah. And it opened with voices from the kitchen heard by a kid in bed sitting with a uh, pad and pencil and making notes on what he heard (laughs) from downstairs. (laughs) So, again, even before you can go
0: anywhere with a pilot, you had to find your Archie Bunker and. Did you consider anyone before Carol O'Connor? Why did you consider Carol O'Connor? Because to me, from what I've heard, he couldn't have been more different from Archie. So what, again, anyone
1: before Carol, and then why Carol? I was in New York. I started auditioning in New York. I must have auditioned 30 guys in New York. And then I was coming out to California, and I had seen, what did you do in the war, Daddy? a film by uh, Blake Edwards, and I had seen this guy playing a lieutenant colonel or something like that, but just one short scene, but I adored his face, and I wanted to meet him. I sent a script to this actor named Carol O'Connor, and when he came in, he was prepared to read. So there was no small talk. He went right to a table. I sat opposite him, and he started to read. And before he got off the second page, I had stopped him, and I said, you're Archie. Wow. Now, was there something before that with Mickey Rooney? Oh, well, no, no, <laughs> that, was, that was just a joke. I mean, it, wasn't, it didn't start as a joke. I was serious thinking about him. But I was in New York, as I said. I was yeah. coming out to California. So I called his agent, who I knew. And the agent said, Mickey, the Mick, he called himself, yeah. the third person. <laughs> the Mick is right here. Why don't you talk to him? I, no, no, no. Let, let me meet with him. He's right here. He wants to talk to you. Go, Norm, said Mickey when he picked up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mickey, can I just tell you in person? It's a, it's a difficult character to describe. No, you got the Mick on the phone. Give it to him. <laughs> I said, okay, he's a bigot. He's this, that, and the other thing. Rooney said, Norm, they're going to kill you. They're going to murder you in the streets. You want to do a show with the Mick? Listen to this. <laughs> private eye, already a World War II veteran. Short, private eye. Blind, and, I think, right? Well, said... blind. How can I forget that? Short, blind, <laughs> private eye. <laughs> what did you say? Just... I said whatever the hell I said. <laughs> that was the end of that. Whatever I said, it was enough to meet with me because I really wanted to hear him talk about Archie Bunker. Wow. But Carol O'Connor happened, and I didn't need another thought. So
0: through these three years of trying to get a pilot, two pilots at ABC, you had, through all of that, Carol and Jane Stapleton as Edith, but it seems like the only thing that really changed was the Meathead and Gloria characters. How did you end up finally on the third one, which ultimately panned out, with
1: Rob Reiner? I think you went back with the family quite a ways. Well, the fact is the fates were kind to me. It would not have been the same. I had very good actors in place when I did it the first and second times with other young people, but it wasn't what developed with Mike and Gloria. And I can only, you know, it's the pace. I couldn't have been luckier.
0: But it seems like you, you first
1: knew of Rob when he was a kid, right? Oh, I, well, I, yeah, I knew Rob. When he played with my daughter. <laughs> One of the first times he was playing with my daughter, I stumbled on them. I came into the room, and they were on the floor, and he was teaching her how to play jacks. It's funny. And that was because you knew Carl? Because I knew Carl. So- and he was saying, no, no, you didn't do that. You pick up the... Then you, then you, he was already in the cadence of the comics his father brought to the
0: house. Funny. So when All in the Family came along, it seems like a lot of comedy series were then being shot single camera like a film, laughs added later, not sort of, they had moved away from what I Love Lucy and people had done with the multicam format with the live audience, all of that. Why did you want to return to that? And also, I'd read that you wanted black and white at one point.
1: Black and white at that point in the history of television seemed more honest Mm -hmm. than what color was looking like. I couldn't talk anybody into that. But the multi-cam format itself... But the multi-cam format, I loved the idea of the audience laughing with the actor and the audience laughter controlling the timing. It's like theater. It is theater. So... From the
0: very first episode, which aired, I guess, 9.30 p.m. January 12th, 1971, you were dealing with bullshit from CBS right from the very beginning. And I guess it would sometimes go right to the highest levels with William Paley. Can you just talk about, I found it pretty amazing that at that time, you were not yet Norman Lear, capital letters, untouchable. You were a guy who was trying to get his first series in years off the ground, and yet you still had the gumption and the ballsiness to push back against attempts to
1: tell you what you could and couldn't. Well, it was simple. I I wasn't going to get my show on the air unless they let me do it. Archie Bunker had to be Archie Bunker or I didn't have a show, as I saw it. So it was not difficult to say, this has got to go this way. And that first episode, the issue was the sexual insinuation of Mike and Gloria? That first episode opened with them on a Sunday morning. Archie and Edith were in church, and they were going to surprise them with a a family brunch because it was their anniversary. And in the course of which, everything was cooking well, and they had some minutes, and Mike talked Gloria into going upstairs. As soon as they went upstairs and you heard the door click, The front door opened, and Archie had left, didn't like the preacher, didn't like the the sermon. sermon. And he came in, followed by Edith, and the kids came downstairs, buttoning up. Yes. (laughs) And Archie, seeing what's happening, his line in reaction to that was, at 11.10 on a Sunday morning. (laughs) Right. And that had to come out. Yeah. Because the way he read it, the entire audience would get the picture. Right. And you can't put that picture in the audience's mind. This is what CBS is telling you. That's what CBS is telling me. I was, you know, we were writing further episodes by the time it went on the air. They were going to take the line out. And I said, if you take the line out, I will not be back at work. And I was heading home to see the show that was on the air that evening. And they had made the edit in New York and completed. When I learned, they left it in. And instead, they just had a little disclaimer at the top of the show. But you guys were always
0: pushing the envelope. That's part of what made it so special. I mean, I've gone back and ahead of this interview, rewatched a lot of the scenes that riled people up at the time. Not just that one that we talked about with Mike and Gloria, but then an attempted rape of Edith, George Jefferson saying the N-word on All in the Family. Was it just constant battles throughout the nine seasons of All in the Family?
1: It was. And, you know, there were some really decent guys who were running the program practices department. And some of what troubled them, we found a better way to do. that didn't trouble them, but we thought it a better way. And so they prompted us to make changes that were good for the show. Yeah. And they knew that, too, and they made them feel good. Yeah. So we had both things happening at the same time, and a couple of times I stood fast, we did it, and no state seceded from the union. Yeah. <laughs> it was perfectly fine.
0: Did anything during the show's run uh, evoke a bigger laugh than Sammy Davis Jr. asking Archie to pose for the photo and then kissing him yeah. just as it was taken? Was there any moment that you remember that got a bigger laugh? I don't remember anything got a bigger laugh, no.
1: That was as big as they get. (laughs) (laughs) And you anticipated that when you wrote it? No, I didn't write that. Uh, We didn't write that. That was found in rehearsal. Just improvisation. Yeah. I think it was Sammy who improvised it and the director went with it. So the worldview of Archie,
0: as you mentioned earlier, sort of encapsulated in the theme song where, of course, those were the days. So that implies that his sense is that things were somehow better in the past in the good old days why can't we go back to that the question that I want to ask you is do you not see a direct through line connecting him to people who are saying make America great again who also want to go back to the way it was because it was the good old days in their mind although it wasn't so good for others in the society I mean would Archie Bunker
1: be a Trump guy You know, I don't know if he would be—I haven't thought hard enough about it, if he'd be a Trump guy. But he certainly wouldn't be a Trump denier. Right. He would find a lot of good things, you know, the way the country is. A lot of people finding a lot of good things about Trump. But As I said earlier, Archie was not a hater. Mm -hmm. I think there's a little hate in the belly of our president currently. Mm -hmm. Archie was not that. He was fearful and 90% of his reaction was the fear of what change brings. Which it's amazing how
0: prescient that was because there's obviously a lot of people who still feel that way in this country. Yeah, human
1: nature doesn't change that much.
0: Interesting, yeah. So. Just to bring in one other president, Richard Nixon was not a fan of yours, right? Or of All in the Family.
1: I am delighted to say I made his enemies <laughs> list.
0: I guess he and Haldeman were talking about All in the Family as uh, they they objected to the depiction of gay people, or what was it? On Yeah, yeah. there was
1: a coach who was well-known in the neighborhood, and he was yeah. hand-wrestling with Archie at yeah. the bar, and the question came up because... Mike had told Harold that he was gay. Yeah, And Carol, who didn't believe it at all, Archie didn't believe it at all, said, can you imagine that? He thought that. And then there's a pause and the guy says nothing. Yeah. And in that pause, Archie said, oh no. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, you know,
0: we've already discussed, and this is just touching on a, a handful of episodes, racism, sexism, violence against women, homophobia, all of these things. So what was it again, when you came into this climate where people are making sitcoms about roasts, that even made you think that it was possible to have a successful sitcom about real issues of social importance.
1: I just couldn't find a way not to believe that reflecting human life as we were living it mm-hmm. wasn't going to work and wasn't going to delight an audience. Mm-hmm. And it does when they see reflected on a stage or in a performance what they have been living in fear with or denial with or, you know, it helps us talk about these issues and understand ourselves better.
0: Yeah. Well, what's incredible to think about is that during the run of All in the Family for those nine seasons, at one point or another, you were doing so many of these other shows, many of them spinoffs, but others not. I want to mention that at one point, it looks like in 1976, you had eight shows on the air simultaneously, All in the Family, Sanford & Son, Maud, Good Times, The Jeffersons, One Day at a Time, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and The Dumplings, six of them in the top 10. Did things just take off when All in the Family proved to be such a hit in the first season that you were inundated with offers to do other things and you just didn't want to pass them up? I mean, how did you end up with such a heavy workload?
1: My heavy workload were all items in our American lives that the writers and directors who preceded me decided not to touch. Yeah. So they left the dictionary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of, uh, the dictionary of problems that American families either faced themselves or they saw up the street, down the street, or across the street from them. We never touched a subject that was that foreign yeah. to everybody who was watching.
0: So can I prompt you about a few of these others that were also so great during the run of All in the Family, starting, I guess, the first other show that happened was Sanford and Son. Of course, this is about an affluent black family living in the Watts part of L.A. You have said that apart from casting Red Fox, you maybe had a little less to do with Sanford and Son than some of these other shows. But what made you want to do the show in the first place and how does it end up while all in the families at CBS
1: how does this end up at NBC well it's a great story it is a great story <laughs> what i did was with bud york and we were in las vegas and we fell in love with red fox his earlobes were funny his knuckles were funny his lashes were he was funny yeah and we fell in love with him. At the same time, we had seen a script that the same person who represented All in the Family showed us called Sanford and Son. And it seemed like a great idea for Red Fox. We were rehearsing the Red Fox show when we were making the earliest episodes of All in the Family. All in the Family was established hit on the show, here, as it was right away. Yeah. And we were rehearsing down the hall Sanford and Son. And there was an afternoon when the NBC guys who made the decisions to do pickups were having lunch east of us. And they they had to pass us on the way back to the valley. And I said, you know, come on over to CBS, pull your collars up, (laughs) and they came. Now this was because CBS
0: had had a shot to do this show and they were not biting.
1: Right, Erwin Siegelstein was the guy's name at NBC and Perry Lafferty, uh-huh. and they saw this unbelievably hysterical guy, Red yeah. Fox, and Demond Wilson, and they bought it right there you know, under the CBS <laughs> roof. These NBC guys bought it. Swooped in. That's great. And it had you know a history of trying to get uh, Fred Silverman, which yeah. running the comedy and so I couldn't get him to see it. He was in and out of town. It's crazy to think. You're doing their top show, the top rated show on
0: TV, and they can't you can't get the time of day. They must have uh, the
1: history of television yeah. is full of such.
0: <laughs> right. So just to keep the chronology straight, All in the Family went on the air in seventy one, Sanford and Son goes on the air in seventy two, and then also in seventy two is the beginning of the first spin off of All in the Family, Maud, which is just to remind people about Edith's cousin Maud Finley, middle aged, outspoken liberal, who you have said is probably the character in your uh, portfolio who is most
1: like you, right? Yes. Why is, yes. How well, is he, that? And you're she and me. She and me? <laughs> yeah, she and me. Because she, we're yeah. liberals who don't know everything we should know to hold the convictions we hold. <laughs> well,
0: so another interesting thing is that demographically, B. Arthur, who I guess was in her late 40s at that point, was not the sort of person that many other people were building shows around. Um, you had this knack, we'd seen it already with Carol O'Connor, for taking character actors and actresses and recognizing their potential. What was it about B. Arthur that made you say she deserves a show of her own?
1: Everything that she did in the show yeah. of her own. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you saw it. When first nobody made me laugh like her when on Broadway, yeah, and off Broadway, we were good friends. I'd seen her in a few things, and nobody ever made me laugh in person Mm -hmm. as much. You know, she just her attitudes were gloriously funny. And the character was one of the few people who could
0: tell Archie where to stick it. Yes, yes. I love the scene where everybody's sick and Mm -hmm. she shows up. But in Maud's first season. I know you're asked about this a lot, but there's this two-part episode, episodes 9 and 10, airing November 14th and 21st of 72, just two months before Roe v. Wade, when you guys deal with abortion, because Maud, I guess at 47, has somehow gotten pregnant and now has to figure this out. That was not a subject that was being dealt with on American television. I know a lot of the things were that, a lot of the subjects that you tackled in your shows were not dealt with before, but I would imagine that was a pretty provocative one. What was the response from the network and from viewers to talking about abortion?
1: starting with the network, it was you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. We had it in rehearsal as a result of their complaints, I remember, we rewrote it in rehearsal and gave her a friend who had four children that she couldn't avoid, she was broke. She had four children she couldn't afford and was pregnant with the fifth and would no more think of an abortion than the man of the moon. She just wouldn't. And we made that a staple, important part of the uh, two episodes. To counterbalance it. And at the very end of the second episode, I will never forget Maud and uh, Walter alone. And these were the concluding lines. Walter, tell me, am I doing the right thing? Maud, he said, in the privacy of our lives, you're doing the right thing.
0: I guess on a lighter note with regard to Maud, there's a scene in the 19th episode of the fifth season, which is called Feminist Fulfillment, that you have said got a longer laugh than anything you've ever done, including, I believe, the Sammy Davis Jr. kiss on All in the Family. Do you know which one I'm referring to? I know
1: which one is in my mind. Please tell it Can you share? Walter, I don't remember exactly what the story was, but Walter and Maude go next door to uh, Vivian, the the neighbor, and she has been expecting her husband, and they've been having a a lot of fun, sexual fun. Yes. And Maude didn't know that she... Or Vivian didn't know. No, Maude didn't know that Vivian was going to be doing this, Ah. opening the door for her husband dressed in cellophane. Yes. <laughs> and we knew it somehow, and right. Maude didn't know it. Right. Maude and Walter walked over and rang the doorbell, and she opened the door <laughs> and slammed it. And they stood there, and the camera on their back. And they stood there and stood there, and the audience just roared. 49 seconds. Of- and, and all Maud had to do was shift her weight to the other foot and they roared again. again, and another some seconds went by, and then she scratched her ear a little. and that just was kept another. it going. Yeah. It was, it was. That's
0: great. Two years after Sanford and Son and Maud were on the air, you introduced Good Times, which is for people making a family tree at home. Now this is a spinoff of Maud, where Florida and James Evans and their three kids are living in a Chicago housing project. Why did you decide that, again, a spinoff was the way to go and that these were people who an audience would want to see? I guess it really started with the character of
1: Florida, right? She was the, the maid, right? It started with the character of Florida. It was very clear that she could handle her own show. Yeah. So we did an episode of it where her husband had to pick her up. We hired Amos, John Amos, to be her husband, and they had a great scene. I I always think of these people as in the Bush Leagues, you know. In this scene, it was all Floridas and her husbands, and they came out of the Bush Leagues and they were holding their own in their own little story on an episode of Maud, at which point before the show was over in New York, three hours later, right. Fred Silverman had a call in to me. And said he recognized it, too. Yeah, there could be a show in those guys.
0: So it seems like of all the shows that you've been a part of, that one maybe had the most, it was the most tumultuous in terms of the interactions with the ensemble. Primarily, Esther Rolle and John Amos, everything was a debate, it seems, especially how how the black experience was portrayed. But I also read, I I saw a thing yesterday prepping for this, where Jimmy Walker was saying he's maybe said two words in his life to, had two words of an exchange in his life with John Amos and Esther Roll. There wasn't a lot of camaraderie even amongst the African-American cast members on the show. So what was at the root of the tensions there?
1: Well, Jimmy Walker turned out to be a young performer who could... Get a huge laugh with the word dynamite. Mm -hmm. A seasoned actor who works harder than that to get a laugh Mm -hmm. will often be frustrated by that. Yeah, and that no longer became the quality that she wanted to be known for on her show. Wanted her show to be known for, but it had its place Mm -hmm. with Jimmy Walker, and that was true of John Amos too. He said a lot of unfortunate things about me in the on guest shots, but that's not true. Evidently today, because very recently I've heard of things he said. Yeah,
0: I saw a few interviews yesterday prepping for this, where I think he's more recently recognized that he was not. I think the word he used a diplomatic uh, person in those days, and I guess it. But it, you know, you don't seem like somebody from all the accounts I've read who is easily. Writing somebody off, yeah. and in his case, it just sort of forced you to kill off the character, right? Right. So, the Jeffersons a year later, another spinoff of All in the Family. These were the Bunkers neighbors who move on up from Queens to the East Side thanks to the dry cleaning business. This ran even longer than All in the Family 11 seasons and introduced TV's first biracial couple, all kinds of things. It seems like you had a lot of fun with the Jeffersons.
1: Why was that? Just the ensemble of people. We were working with great performers. We had that inspired really terrific writing, and none of it had been done before. Yeah. So I mean, everything was exciting about it. So it ran
0: so long, but then it ended sort of bizarrely. Sherman Helmsley said he learned about its cancellation in the newspaper. Oh yes. What is that, What happened?
1: Uh, I, I no longer remember. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was. It's had a had a long run. Uh, after eleven years. Yeah, that's quite a while. Know. Had he been paying more attention to the business of this? (laughs) Yes.
0: This one obviously connects us to the present. One Day at a Time also started in 1975. First divorced woman on TV. What made you feel it was important to tell the story of a divorced woman raising her children? Well,
1: I I knew that when Jim Brooks and his partner, whose name I'm losing at the moment, uh, came up with the Mary Tyler Moore show. Mm -hmm. At first, she was going to be a divorcee. The network wouldn't have that. So in addition to everything we knew about Bonnie Franklin character, yeah. she was the actress who played the mother. Wouldn't it be interesting if she was a divorcee since there's never been a divorcee right. on television? And we went with it. Yeah. Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman,
0: a year later, different from your other shows, single camera, no studio audience, no laughter cues, shot like a film. Why Why was that the right format and what was the underlying reason for the show? Was it intended primarily to mock the or send up the soap opera genre or the um, American life at
1: that point? Or what was the reason to do it? It was to send up the uh, genre, but after some days only working with Mary Hartman, Louise Lassert, there was a talent. That America had never with all of the television shows yeah. that that gave us giant cast members, stars yeah. in their characters, there had never been anybody like Mary Hiram Yeah. Not anybody yeah. like Mary Own. Yeah. And so we made sure that the show reflected that.
0: Yeah. And it was two seasons, but very memorable. I know people the the wax on the and floor. I mean,
1: that was five, <laughs> five nights a week, too.
0: Right, that's a lot That's a lot Five shows a week with Mary Hartman And when that was ending, I guess When that was winding down that's I guess you could call these a spinoff of Mary Hartman Mary Hartman, Fernwood tonight And then evolving into America tonight Was that just because you had seen that What you could do, sending up one genre of TV With the soap opera Here's a chance to do that with late night shows
1: Is that Was that the appeal? And, and we also had Fred Willard Yeah. And Martin Mull, oh, my God Yeah it was
0: <laughs> because that is way ahead of the curve when yeah. people now look at whether it's the Daily Show or anything. That was has to have been a, a model. But so you had this incredibly prolific decade of the '70s, and then in the '80s you just walked away from it. It seems and not to, and were very involved with other things with your political activities and everything else. But was that the result of? Burning out, which would be totally understandable, or getting bored, or what What was that? What propelled dropping it? It
1: certainly wasn't getting bored. I haven't found the day I've been bored. <laughs> Just doing different things. I I, I I don't know how to answer it. I don't remember ever feeling, well, now's the time, you know, not to knock on these doors or make these phone calls because right. they're not feeling in the same way about answering them. Right. I never. Felt that. Well, I know that
0: you were very involved in those years with founding People for the American Way and then film producing. You you and Meathead were reunited on, I think, his yeah. first four movies as a director. This is Spinal Tap, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, and, and another. But it seems like you always preferred making TV to movies. Do you have any theory for why
1: that was? It required much more, you know. Look at how many stations and and streamers and whatnot there right. are now there are you know, i used to speak of having three doors to knock on yeah. <laughs> to sell something right and now there are four thousand doors but also is it there's something about
0: the uh, ability to deal with topical things on tv that you because you can turn it around fast or at least in those days when you weren't dropping all the episodes at once which streaming sort of now requires it that was that part of the appeal that you could have an immediate response to things going on in the world that too i'm sure yes yeah yeah Yeah. so all these years later there were other shows that you know we could touch upon but all these years later 2017 why of all the norman lear shows that we've talked about which were so great
1: why was one day at a time the one to revisit because somebody once asked brent miller with whom i work yeah my partner what about a Latino version of One Day at a Time? You've got Rita Moreno, and she make a great-grandmother and so forth. I said, that's a great idea. And that's why. Happenstance. Was there a part
0: of it, though, I know you've spoken in other interviews, about the fact that your demographic, let's say people in their 80s, 90s, there's a lot of them out there, and yet they're invisible on TV. Here was uh-huh. a chance to give a really great actress in that age group Demo a, a chance to have a great part, right? Well, that was that was important too. Yes, and you dealt. I know on this show you've dealt with the treatment of veterans as well because she's someone. a you know a veteran and with PTSD issues. And
1: should the show be picked up, we will deal with far more about veterans.
0: Well, so you anticipate that that next thing as I'm winding down here. Uh, Netflix, I guess, an appeal is you get the resources you need. They sort of leave you alone. Downside is you don't. Really, I guess from what I understand, know how your show is doing. So, were you surprised when this all happened with Netflix that that they would just say it's well, it's we, over? We
1: had more reason than that to be totally surprised because when it became clear that they might not pick it up, I could not believe the press we got yeah. from writers for, in, in the press who were saying, "You've got to pick them up." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't remember, uh, you know, a sea of television correspondents who kind of fashioned a club for people who wanted to, say, keep it on the air. Right. But that's what occurred. So would you be open to going back to Netflix? Oh, of course. Yeah.
0: We're we're out there hoping to sell it still right now. Have you received feelers from people? Yes, we have. So... Final minute here. I just wonder if we can do, we close with rapid fire. Just the first thing that occurs to you. Do you watch your old stuff when you come upon it on TV? No, I don't come upon it. You don't, okay. When you see TV today and you see the, you know, so many of the people that are behind the big shows today consider you a hero. Seth MacFarlane, Kenya Barris, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, Amy Sherman-Palladino, on and on and on, Matt Weiner, Ryan Murphy. When you see the kinds of deal some of these guys are making a 300 million dollar deal at a place like Netflix mm-hmm. if you had been doing what you were doing in the 70s today does it cross your mind to just think like how cra- how different it, the times are what
1: i mean you would be probably a billion dollar guy today right but i'm a 96 year old guy who has had a perfectly terrific life right he's done everything he's wished to do uh, have a glorious wife and marriage and six Wonderful kids who range in age from 24 to 72. (laughs) What the fuck have I got to complain about? Last question.
0: What keeps you at 96 so sharp and young and energetic? And
1: will we see more Norman Lear shows? I do a lot of these interviews. (laughs) (laughs) I got people like you coming and working for a couple of days in advance of the meeting just to find a question I will be unable to answer. Yeah. But we haven't seen the last Norman Laird show. I don't think you have, no. Awesome. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, too. This was a good time. Thanks very
0: much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg, and you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash The Race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.